Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. This fall we have been working our way through a series of sermons based on uh, the Shorter Catechism questions which delineate uh, the benefits of our salvation in Christ. Uh, And uh, those uh, benefits are enumerated according to whether they are benefits we experience in this life, whether they are benefits we experience at death, or whether they are benefits we experience at uh, the resurrection. And this morning we come to those benefits which we experience or will experience at uh, the resurrection. Remember that last week we looked at what happens to us when we die or what benefits we receive at death. And we saw that when believers die, our souls pass immediately into glory and are themselves glorified, that our souls are are made perfect in true righteousness and holiness as we leave the body and go to be with the Lord. And it is because of this fact that Paul is able to say uh, that for him and by consequence all believers, for all of us, death will be gained. However, it is important for us to remember that our death and our souls going into glory that that is not the end of the story. Our death, our, our souls uh, going immediately into heaven, uh, that, is, that is good. But there is something even better that God has in store for His people. We, one day, will be resurrected. We will be raised bodily to live a bodily life on a new earth. That is our eternal destiny. It is not to be a disembodied spirit in heaven forever. Rather, the, the Scriptures clearly speak of what uh, N.T. Wright refers to as life after life after death. You know, we have life after death where we, where we go to heaven. But after that, there is a life to come, an embodied life. A life lived on earth. A life that will be eternal. A life that will be perfect. A life in which we will glorify and enjoy God for all eternity. And nowhere is that future more clearly discussed than here in 1 Corinthians 15. And so this morning, we are going to be working our way through uh, the entire chapter. But it's a long chapter. It's some 58 verses. So instead of reading the whole thing up front and then then going back to it, what we're going to do is I'm going to read a portion at a time, sort of comment on what that portion shows us. And then at the end, we'll try to sum it up and unpack some of the application as we work our way through uh, this chapter. So let's uh, begin with prayer and ask God to bless our study, uh, and then we will read the first section of 1 Corinthians 15. Pray with me. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth uh, that it teaches us. We thank you for the freedom that that truth grants to us. And we just pray now, Father, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to that truth, to soften our hearts to receive it, and to strengthen our wills to walk in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 15, first 11 verses, verses 1 through 11. Listen to this. This is the very Word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and you believed. That is the reading of God's Word. Here in this chapter, Paul means to unpack for us the reality of our future resurrection. He, he wants to point us to, to the reality that God has in store for us. But he begins not by looking forward, but by looking back. Looking back to the ground of our future resurrection. He begins by saying, listen, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. I want to remind you of the good news. And it's vital that we see that what Paul has to proclaim to us is good news and not simply good advice. You see, good news is a report. It is, it is a, a testimony to what has been accomplished. When you, when you watch the news, you are being told what has happened in the world. And Paul is here to tell us, he says, listen, I want to remind you of the good news, of the good report, of what has been accomplished. Because everything that I'm going to tell you about the future is built upon the foundation of what has already been accomplished in the past. You see, Christianity does not give us simply good advice. It does not tell us how to live that we might reconcile ourselves to God. But rather, it tells us what God has done to reconcile us to Himself. And what is this message? Paul says, it's the message that you received. It's the the message that you believed when I proclaimed it to you before. It's It's the message in which you now stand, assuming that you continue to believe this message. And notice it is the message by which you are being saved, present tense. So, assuming that this this is an ongoing application, he doesn't mean to suggest that, that... The work of salvation is not yet complete. Christ himself said it is finished upon the cross. The the salvation is accomplished. It is ready to be revealed, but it is still in the process of being applied. We do not yet possess all of its benefits. And so we are in process. We are being saved. We, We still await the full benefit. And the full and final benefit of that salvation that we still await is our own resurrection. When we will one day be raised in glory. But what is this message? What is this good news that Paul proclaimed that leads to this end? Well, he tells us beginning in verse 3. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. I proclaimed to you that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ died for 
our sins. He died as our substitute. He, he died in our place because we were sinners. Christ came and died for us that we might know life instead of death. He drank the cup of God's wrath in our place upon the cross that we might know the cup of his blessing. That is the very heartbeat of the gospel. That Christ took our place upon the cross that we might live. He, he died in, for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And he was buried. Interesting, the, the apostles emphasized that Christ was, was buried, emphasizing that his death was no sham. It was no mere appearance, but he was actually dead. He was actually buried. The, the Romans knew how to kill people. They knew how to tell whether or not people were dead. And when they took Jesus down off the cross and they, they laid him in the tomb, he was physically dead. His body was committed to the ground, just as one day our bodies will be. And so he was Dead, he was buried. But again, that is not the end of the story. He, he died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. But on the third day, He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. And Christ's death is the seal of our salvation. It, it is Christ's death that shows that the debt was paid in full. You see, death could no longer hold him because death no longer had any claim on him because the debt had been paid. So long as the debt remained outstanding, death had power. But when the debt of the law was paid, death's power was taken away. Paul's going to say that the power of death is or the power of sin is death and the power of death is the law. And when that law is settled, then Death loses its power. It could no longer hold him. He, he rose again. Death was conquered. The, the debt was paid so that all who believe in him, John tells us, should not perish but have eternal life. He then drives home uh, the truth of this resurrection, that, that this, was, this was no mere spiritual reality. This was, this was no mere resurrection in the, in the minds of the apostles by, by listening to us just a series of witnesses. He appeared first to Cephas, he tells us. Then he appeared to the twelve. Then he appeared to 500 brothers at once. So some, most of whom were still alive at the time. Basically, Paul's saying, listen, go ask him if you don't believe me. There are many, many eyewitnesses, and I am but one to this resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That He rose bodily, victorious over death. Paul says, this is the gospel that I preach. This is the gospel that you believe. This is the gospel by which you are being saved. And this gospel, this, this message of Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected again, this gospel is the foundation of your future hope. It is the foundation of the promised resurrection. Because he takes this up in verses 12 through 34. Look with me that those verses, again, reading, beginning at verse 12. Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, 
then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life we have, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For if Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then that is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destro- uh, to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. That is the reading of God's word. Notice that as Paul transitions from Christ's resurrection to our future hope of resurrection, he he begins with a question. He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? How can you you say that that there is no future hope of resurrection for God's people, that that even God couldn't raise the dead? If we know that our whole hope is based on the fact that Christ himself was raised from the dead. And then Paul seems to belabor the point. He says, listen, if there's no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then there is no salvation through faith in him. For if Christ has not been raised, then the penalty for sin has not been paid. You see, if if Christ died and then did not rise again, it it means that death still has dominion over him. It means that the death has not been conquered because sin has not been paid for in full. He says, listen, you have to understand that if, if there is no resurrection, there is no salvation. Salvation is utterly and, and completely dependent upon the reality of Christ's death and his resurrection. His death alone is not sufficient. So if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. 
you are to be pitied more than all men even. Because you think not, you are living in the present as if there was some future hope of resurrection. And you are willing to, to undergo suffering as, as Paul went under at Ephesus. He said, we, we are willing to suffer. We are willing to deny ourselves in the present because we know the future that has been promised to us. But if that future is an illusion, if that future is not real, then, then our sacrifices in this life are, are utter foolishness. It would be better for us to just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If there is no future hope of resurrection. So Paul just drives home this point that, that our entire faith rests upon the reality of, of Christ's resurrection. But then he goes on to say that, that Christ's resurrection is more than just the ground of our resurrection. Yes, our resurrection is built upon the foundation of His resurrection. It is His resurrection that makes possible our resurrection. But notice that His resurrection is more than just the ground of our resurrection. It is also the blueprint of our resurrection. It is also the model of our resurrection. Jesus rose at the first about what that word first fruits indicates. It means that, that Christ's resurrection is a foretaste of what our resurrection will be. You see, the first fruits show you what the harvest is going to be. If you, if you plant a plant and, and the first fruits that you take off of that plant are tomatoes, then you can be pretty sure that that is a tomato plant. And that the whole harvest is going to be a harvest of tomatoes. You're not going to come out later to find out that, you know, okra is growing on that plant that you thought was a tomato plant. If the, if the first fruits were tomatoes, the whole harvest will be tomatoes. And if, if Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of our salvation, then we can be sure that our salvation will be like his resurrection. What was true of him will be true of us. Just as he rose victorious over death, we will rise victorious over death. In other words, because of what Christ has done on our behalf, death is a defeated enemy. Death could not hold him, and it will not be able to hold us either. Now, in the middle of this discussion, Paul makes a very strange statement in verse 29. He says, otherwise, why do pe what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, I thought I would just sort of skip over that verse, but then I thought, well, if I do that, everyone's going to go, well, you know, you kind of chickened out. Well, I'm still going to sort of skip over it, but um, let me just acknowledge it just for a second. I, I don't want to get sidetracked over it, but I can't just completely skip over it. But I have heard many pastors and, and many you know, theology professors basically just say, I have no idea what Paul's talking about here. And then they just sort of move on. All right. We don't know exactly what Paul means when he says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? We're pretty sure he, he doesn't, he's not here, uh, you know, saying, yes, it's a good idea to have vicarious baptisms on behalf of those who have, who have already died. We, we don't think that's what Paul means. But, but here's what I want you to see. That even if we have no idea what Paul's talking about in that verse, you can still understand the paragraph. The, the, the main point of the paragraph is still clear. And that's just an important lesson. It, it's not the main point this morning, but it, it, it's an important lesson to learn when you're reading through the Scriptures. Peter himself says, there are things in Paul that I don't understand. There are things that he writes and I just find myself scratching my head. Peter said that. And so, you know, we can be comfortable if we come to some of the things that Paul says and says, I don't know what you're talking about, Paul. 
But don't let sort of the confusion about one little phrase make you miss the clarity of the big picture. Because Paul's point in that paragraph is clear. What what Paul is saying is, listen, our whole salvation is based on the reality of the resurrection. If, If the dead are not raised, then let us eat, drink, and be merry, for we have no true hope. But because the resurrection is real, because the resurrection is true, we have a hope that transforms the way we live in the present. We have a hope that makes it possible for a man like Paul to face, face beasts at Ephesus. See, see that the point is clear. Paul is saying, listen, death is a defeated enemy. We don't have to sort of pursue pleasure in this life because this life is all there is. The resurrection is real. And because death is a defeated enemy, we now have a sure and certain hope for the future. But to say that death is a defeated enemy doesn't really take us much beyond what we said last week. You know, last week we, we saw that when we die, our, our souls pass immediately into glory and that we are with the Lord. But Paul wants to say more than this. He doesn't, he doesn't want to leave us there. He doesn't want to leave us with the impression that, that escaping this body is all that there is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul speaks about his longing for death. He says, we long to be rid of this body. And he refers to it as a house. He says, but not that we might be unclothed, not that we might just be without a body at all, but that we might be further clothed. The longing of the Christian heart is is not to escape the body, but is to have a body that has been made right. Not to escape this world, but to, to live in a world that is made right. That's the resurrection hope. And that's what Paul wants us to see as he now turns his attention to the nature of the resurrection. So let's read the next section here. The the nature of our resurrection body, beginning at verse 35. Paul writes, but some will say, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, the first man Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from Heaven. 
as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That is the reading of God's word. Again, Paul begins with a question. He asks the question that he knows that his readers are asking. He says, how are the dead raised? He's been talking about the fact that in Christ, death is a defeated enemy, that the death can no longer hold us, and that we have this sure and, and certain hope of, of life after death. But now he says, but what is that going to be like? What is, that, what is the nature of that life? When he says, how are the dead raised? He doesn't mean by what power are they raised. He, he doesn't mean by what mechanism are they raised. But rather he means, what is their, raised, their resurrection life going to be like? We, we see this in the follow-up question. He says, with what kind of body do they come? And Paul answers this question first by pointing to the discontinuity. He points to the discontinuity between the resurrection body and our present mortal bodies. Notice what he says. He says, what is sown is not the body that is going to be. He said, when you put a seed into the ground, you don't come back later and dig up that seed and eat it. But rather, the seed is going to be transformed and it's going to to give life to a whole plant that is different than the seed. And so there is discontinuity between our present bodies and our future bodies. Our present bodies are not going to be like our future bodies. There's going to be a a transformation. There's going to be a, a substantial difference. But once he has pointed out that the resurrection bodies will be different, he then immediately points out that they will also be the same, at least in some sense. Notice what he says. He says there will be continuity, but there will there will be discontinuity, but there will also be continuity. He says to each kind of seed, God gives its own body. So the body is going to be different, but it's going to still going to be its own kind of body. He says there's a there's one kind of flesh for animals. There's one kind of flesh for humans. There's one kind of flesh for for birds. You know, you're not going to become you're not going to be resurrected as a fish. You know, you're not going to be resurrected as a tree. You, know, you are going to be resurrected as a human being created in the image of God. You are still going to be you. That's what the resurrection is. But there's going to be a grand and glorious difference. You are still going to be you created in the image of God. But there's going to be this grand difference that he begins to unpack for us in verse 42. He says, presently, you are perishable. We know this all too well, do we not? We, we know the, the decline of our bodies. We know that we are headed towards death. We feel that our outer nature is wasting away, as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We know what it is to approach the physical decline of our bodies until one day they shall return to dust, even as God promised in Genesis chapter 3. But when we are raised, we will no longer be perishable. When we are raised, our bodies will be imperishable. They will will no longer be subject to decay. They will have a life that is everlasting. They will have a a life that that goes on forever with, with unfading glory. 
That is the wonder of what is in store for us. We will never again have to to deal with the decline of our bodies. We will never have to again deal with the brokenness of our bodies. We will have a body that is imperishable. But not only will it be imperishable, it will be glorious. Paul says, what you have now, it is dishonorable. We are not... You know, real thrilled about Paul telling us that we are presently dishonorable, that we are not presently worthy of praise. You know, we, we, we like to think well of ourselves, but in our more honest moments, we recognize, yes, we are dishonorable, that even our best actions are polluted with sin. Even our, our purest motives are still mixed. Even when we do our best works, there is still that pollution, that stain of sin. We are presently dishonorable. And yet the day is coming when we will be glorious. That glory that we fell short of, the glory of God that we fell short of when we sinned against Him, when we rebelled against Him, that is to be restored to us. Paul says it in Romans 3. Peter says it in his, the first chapter of his letter. He says, listen, there is a glory that is in store for those who, who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be raised glorious, worthy of praise. You see, we all have in our hearts this, this desire to be good. This desire to be excellent at something anyway. You know, this is why we gravitate to the things that we are, we are good at. We want to we do the things that, that make us um, you know, recognize something of value, something, something of, of goodness in us. But our best efforts are always frustrated in this life. We, we always fall short of the excellence that we desire. And so we end up pretending. We end up hiding. We end up lying. We end up projecting, you know, putting our best foot forward. And trying to sort of cover over the the shortcomings. But the reality is a day is coming when we will have nothing to hide. Remember what the scripture said about Adam and Eve in the beginning. They were naked and felt no shame. None of us has known anything like that. All our lives to be fully exposed is to be ashamed. Because we are dishonorable. But the day is coming when that shame will be taken away. Because we will be made glorious. We will be conformed perfectly to the image of the glory of Christ. We will be all that God created us to be when we were made in His. That's what's coming. That is what God has in store for us. A body that is glorious. The third thing that Paul mentions is that our current bodies, they are weak. But that one day we are going to be raised in power. Again, here, the the weakness that he is talking about is just that weakness, that inability to to do what we know we ought to do. We we lack the power. Think of, again, Paul's description in Romans chapter 7. He says, the good I want to do, I don't do. The evil I want to stop doing, I keep doing. We've all known that weakness. And yes, it is true that God's grace is now presently training us to say no to the passions of our flesh and to to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That That is the reality of our present sanctification. But we know how long there is, how much work there is left to be done, how far short we fall of the goal. We continue to be weak. 
But the day is coming. The day is coming when we will be raised in power. When we will be able to walk in obedience. When we will be able to to truly and sincerely love God with all our heart. And and to not be lured and enticed by by the foolish passions of our flesh. When we will be able to, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And to truly put their interests before our own without any grumbling, without any bitterness, without any complaining. But simply because we delight to do it. That is what is in store for us. One day the day we will be able to obey God's law in full. We will be powerful. And then finally he says that what is presently natural will be raised spiritual. Now to many that's confusing language because it almost sounds like Paul is saying that these bodies that we're going to have are going to be spiritual bodies. That is in non-material bodies. But that's not what he means at all. When Paul uses the language of, of spiritual, he doesn't mean uh, immaterial. But rather, if you'll turn back to just 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you can see for a moment what Paul means by these, this language of, of natural and spiritual. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. I don't have time to to unpack all that, but just notice the, the way that Paul describes people in this age. He says they are either natural or spiritual. The natural person is the person who, is, uh, who lives according to the, the pattern of this world, the person who lives according to the wisdom of this world, the, the person who is um, walking in the, in the way of this world. That is the, the natural person, and that is who we are now. We, we follow the patterns of this world. Even as believers, we, we continue to be uh, conformed to the patterns of our former ignorance far more than we care to admit. Paul says that is, that's our natural state. That is the natural man. But when we are raised, we will be spiritual, which means that our lives will be in perfect accord with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are we are now spiritual in Christ. He says it right there in chapter two. We are we are now spiritual persons. We now have the capacity to to keep in step with the spirit. But we are not yet that perfectly. We are we are not yet that fully there is that, the, the, the natural man continues, the, the old man as Paul sometimes calls it, it continues to, to uh, entangle us. But the day is coming when that old man, when that natural man, it will be totally eradicated. As Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 3, that which is earthly in us will be totally removed. And we will be spiritual. We will be able to live perfectly in accord with the ministry and the guiding and the leading of the Holy Spirit so that our lives will be marked by the fruit of the Spirit without any of the weeds of the flesh. So we will still be us and we will still have real tangible bodies you know, flesh and blood type bodies, but they will be different than they are now. They will be redeemed bodies, as Paul said. Live life on earth, but live it as it was meant to be. Live it apart from 
the pollution of sin. Live it to the praise of the glory of God. And then in the final section, the final verses of, of, first, of Corinthians 15, Paul says that when we are raised in this way, what will happen next is that we will inherit the kingdom of God. Read with me uh, verses 50 through 57. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, the natural man, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the reading of God's Word. And notice just where Paul begins again. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He says, without this resurrection, you can't have the kingdom. He says, but being raised, being raised like this, being, being raised imperishable, being raised powerful, being raised glorious, being raised spiritual, the kingdom of God will be Yours. Even those who do not die before Christ returns, even those who are still alive when He comes again, they, like those who are dead, will be transformed. They will experience the same resurrection power. Now what is implied in this statement, though it's not explicitly mentioned, is, is the, the fact of this last judgment. That, that at the last judgment, everyone will be raised, both the righteous and the unrighteous, but the, the righteous will be raised to inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ will be raised in this manner. They will be raised like Christ. And therefore, the kingdom of Christ will be theirs. And what I want you to see then is that the last judgment holds no threat. Yes, there is a judgment at the resurrection. Yes, there, yes we, are, we are going to be held accountable for, for the deeds done in the body. But if you are in Christ, that Judgment holds no threat. Because ultimately, you will be judged upon Christ's merit and not your own. If you stand apart from Christ, you will be rewarded apart from Christ. But if you stand in Christ, you will be rewarded in Christ. In fact, the judgment that you will receive on that day has already been announced. That's what your justification is all about. Justification is the declaration of God's courtroom saying, this one is righteous. This one is good with me. And that declaration on that last day will stand. As our catechism says, on that day you will be openly acknowledged and acquitted as a child of God. And you will be received into the kingdom. To live a life to the glory of God for all eternity. See, that's 
the future that God has in store for His people. We, we've seen three things this morning. We've seen the ground of our resurrection. We've seen that, that our resurrection rests upon Christ's resurrection. That because Christ is raised, we will be raised. But more than that, we've seen that as Christ was raised, we will be raised. That, that His resurrection is the blueprint for our resurrection. That, that His bodily resurrection to life is, is a foretaste, a foreshadowing of, of our bodily resurrection to life. That like Him, we will be raised glorious. We will be raised powerful. We will be raised imperishable. We will be raised spiritual. But we will be raised with a real and true body. And then finally, we've seen that the result of this resurrection is that all who are raised in this way, that they will inherit the kingdom of God. They will inherit it to, to take dominion over it, to, to rule over it, even as God commanded at the very beginning that we should rule over His creation to His glory. And so in a sense, what we are being restored to is that original task that was, was given to us, to, to rule creation on His behalf. I don't have time to, to fully unpack all the implications that, uh, that there are of, of this verse. But just look with me very quickly at the very last verse in this chapter. Verse 58. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that, the, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul just sort of out, lays out for us the implications of this doctrine of the resurrection for our present. And let me just unpack them very quickly. First, we will be steadfast and immovable. You see, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that we must, be, we must not be moved from the hope of the gospel that we believe. And if you know that this resurrection is what God has in store for you, then you will be able to stand Firm. You will not be lured and enticed by the promise of other things. You will not be lured and enticed to, to give your life to the pursuit of, of other gods, other things that you want to find your satisfaction in, other things that you want to find your, your name in, other things that you want to find your life in. He says those things will lose their power when you know what God has in store for you in Christ. You will be stable and steadfast in the hope of the gospel. But not only will you be stable and steadfast, you won't just be sort of passive waiting for the day, but you will be in the present abounding in the works of the Lord. So you'll be stable and steadfast, but you will be doing the works of the Lord. Why? Why do, do works flow out of this doctrine of resurrection? Well, just think about it. We know that what our future holds is, is not some disembodied spiritual existence where we're floating on clouds and singing, but we will be doing the work of the Lord for all eternity. The things that you do now, you will do for all eternity. You won't have to deal with the thorns and the thistles anymore. You won't have to deal with the frustration. You won't have to deal with the brokenness, but you will still work. You will still tend to God's creation. You will still create art. You will, there will still be accountants, I think. There will, there will still be business people. There will still be, probably not lawyers. We won't need that, probably. But, you know, but, but all this stuff we will still have. We will still be doing work. And we know that God will delight in it forever. And if He will delight in it forever, He delights in it now. And if that is your salvation, if that's the good life, then would you not... Seek to have as much of it in the present as you can possibly have. You, will, you want to live to the glory of God now. You will abound in the works of the Lord now because you know that what you do now is not in vain. That there is a reward that is coming, 
a life that is coming, a resurrection life that will be yours, that transforms the way you think about your life here and now. And so because of all that is true in Christ, we will be stable and steadfast. We will be not unmoved from the hope of the gospel. And we will abound in the works of the Lord because we know that those are the works of heaven. Just think about that. You have an opportunity now to experience heaven on earth. How? Not by escaping the body, but by using your body to the glory of God. Use your body as he created it to be used. Use it to do his work to his glory in his way. And you will now begin to experience the heaven, the bliss, the pleasures at his right hand, which will be yours for all eternity. And because we can have such a foretaste even now in this life, That is one reason we call this good news. Now, do you believe that? Amen. Pray with me. Father God, what a vision of the future you give us. What a hope is ours in Christ. Father God, may we see it, may we believe it, and may we allow it to transform our thinking so that our lives might be renewed and so that we might be set free to abound in the works of the Lord, to the praise of your glory, and to our ultimate good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.